My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we discussed water, featuring Bizet Gray, indigenous rights activist and water defender, as well as Oya and France of PNG. We heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline, about recognizing water's spiritual, soulful, and cultural importance, as well as repairing the mental rift between humans and the rest of nature. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out. Today's episode is about women and girls. For most of my life, I didn't identify as a feminist because of how politicized and polarizing that word felt. Yet I've now spent enough years on this planet with a vagina and treated differently because of that to say I am a feminist. Heck, I'm an eco-feminist after the conversations in today's episode. I wish we lived in a gender neutral, gender equal society, but we don't. We live in a patriarchal system that perpetuates the climate crisis and punishes people with my anatomy. 80% of those displaced by climate change are, drumroll please, women. We are uniquely placed to respond to and solve this crisis, both on the front lines and in leadership. Yet our voices continue to be ignored and suppressed. This year, women are the heads of state or government in 21 of 193 countries. That is less than 11%. In business, there are more S&P 500 CEOs named Michael or James than there are women. But at least in the climate world, a movement that is so progressive, we're bringing women to the table, right? Uh-uh, wrong. The UK assembled a group of leaders to host this year's climate talks in Glasgow. Wanna guess how many were women? Zero. Yup, zero. And when we are brought to the table, we are often patronized. Just yesterday, I received a WhatsApp from a family member telling me they were disappointed I was being so outspoken and subscribing to Greta syndrome. Perhaps more people would listen to my message if I was likable. <sighs> I can't help but wonder. Would the same be said if my name were Callum? I feel like I've let myself down at times when I've conformed to how the men at the table expect me to act. Submissive, docile, and subordinate. Just so that I can get through the door. Trying to negotiate change while being hit hardest by the climate crisis is no doubt a cause for eco-anxiety in women and girls around the world. 
So how do we ensure our voices and our leadership is at the forefront? At the end of today's episode, I'll be speaking to Fideus Elhansali, Global Communications and Sustainability Director at Dove. You'll hear from young women around the world facing up to their eco-anxiety, as well as our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman. First up, I wanted to speak to my friend, Nagiz Bayer, creator of Chicks for Climate on Instagram. Nagiz started this community platform to inform young people about the intersections of climate change and feminism. And since our conversation, she has amassed over 400,000 followers. Nagiz, it's all yours. My name is Nagiz. I'm 24. I'm the creator of Chicks for Climate, which is a platform that brings together feminism and environmentalism. I started it two years ago and it's now almost 350k strong. I started it as a result of my own eco-anxiety. Why Chicks for Climate and why eco-feminism? And can you tell us what eco-feminism is exactly? A lot of people think that climate change affects the whole planet and the whole world equally. Oftentimes it's referred to as something that, you know, we're all in together. You know, it's kind of like a uniting thing, like us against climate change. But actually, the more you learn about climate change, the more you understand that it affects different people differently. And women in particular are much more adversely affected by climate change than anyone else. Why is it that women are disproportionately impacted? 80% of people displaced by climate change are women, primarily in the global south. Women in the global south often have duties in the household that are, you know, quite traditional and they're tasked with duties that involve walking long distances to get water for the house, for example, or taking care of farmland. And those things are heavily reliant on weather events. So if there's a drought, women have to walk much further to get water. If there's heavy rainfall, then crops get flooded and those women suffer as a result. Even in the US, when hurricanes hit, the threat of sexual violence in shelters, for example, is disproportionately impacts women. And there are, you know, trends that link those two things together. So more natural disasters, more sexual violence and gender-based violence. There was a lot of controversy recently because it came out that the COP26 organizing leadership from the UK was entirely comprised of men. What do you think those barriers are to more institutional change? And how do we begin to change that power dynamic and historic power imbalance, but also lack of representation, particularly around gender? Education. Women and girls who are most adversely affected by climate change are not educated at the same rates as white Western European women. Therein lies the problem. It's systemic. And it's a very difficult problem to solve unless the leaders involved in COP26 take a stand, which I think is highly unlikely. Unless the broader problem of systemic sexism is addressed, then we won't have women leaders in climate policies. As long as we have primarily white men making these decisions, I doubt that these kinds of events are going to make a huge difference. I think this is going to be very much a grassroots movement led by the people, led by the youth. And COP26, in all honesty, I think is a smokescreen. The people who are impacted the most by climate change don't have a voice in the policymaking part of mitigating the crisis. That men traditionally hold positions of power, so they have access to money. But I did notice a theme that 
women are more likely to care about climate change and are more likely to change their habits to do something about it. Upon noticing these things, I thought there's something here. So I started to read more into sort of eco-feminist theory. And it's something that's been going on for a long time in, for example, India with the Chipko movement, which happened in the 70s, a movement by rural Indian women who um, hugged trees in order to protect them from deforestation. So that's one of the like earliest recordings of eco-feminist movements. And then people like Wangari Maathai, who's the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. So these women have really paved the way for modern day eco-feminism. But another observation that I made was my male friends were less likely to make changes in their lives to be more eco-friendly. And actually, again, upon reading into it, I found out that toxic masculinity is a huge problem and discourages men from taking action for fear of being seen as gay. And so eco-feminism seeks to make a connection between how capitalism and the patriarchy exploits both the planet and women and ecofeminism connects those two things together as one. What you said around gender engagement is certainly something that we've seen in Force of Nature as well. We run programs with young people from all corners of the world and the majority of young people we work with who both identify as feeling really eco-anxious and want to make a difference are women. And we also see, to your point, around toxic masculinity, how fear of talking about mental health is a large driver of that. And often then we will have young men come in who are just as you know compassionate and empathetic and have such a wealth of emotion, yet are often saying, this is the first time I've ever talked about my mental health to someone, right? By the time they're 17 or 18 years old. What do you feel contributes to this divide in the broader climate conversation between genders? The fact that we refer to Earth as Mother Nature, as this nurturing being, is a good thing, but we have to take into account that in a toxic masculine society, men are raised to ignore their you know nurturing sides and women are taught to really hone in on those qualities and so all of a sudden when you ask men to be empathetic to be nurturing or to try and protect a being that's been referred to as mother nature it becomes i think a bit of a hard ask there's studies that show men are more likely to support environmental organizations that have imagery with like wolves and mountains rather than like trees and things like that there's another part to that too and it's called petromasculinity which is basically a a phenomenon that primarily exists, I think, in the US. And it's the idea that gas guzzling, meat eating men are real men. And obviously, those behaviors are really detrimental to the environment. Feminism is not just for women, it's for men, it's for non-binary people, it's for everyone. It benefits everyone because in a feminist world, men are free to be nurturing and be empathetic. And they don't need to show their masculinity through their, you know, big engines or their meat eating habits. And I think if we address toxic masculinity and if we dismantle patriarchy, then the solutions to climate change will closely follow. Do you feel that a lot of these kind of social pressures that are imposed on women, the need to be fashionable or the need to be perfect and wear makeup, do you think that that potentially contributes to more of the mental health problems that intersect with kind of eco-anxiety? Patriarchal capitalistic structures have pushed messaging on women that we need to be perfect and we need to buy this lipstick in order to be perfect or we need to dress this way in order to be perfect. If you consume, you will then reach this perfect ideal. But that is completely in conflict with living within the bounds of the earth and what the earth has given us. And so the extractive element 
of capitalism and the patriarchy harms both women and the earth. And it's impossible for us as women to live peacefully within that structure because, you know, not only are we brought up to be more nurturing and worry more about others and particularly the environment, but we're also brought up to consume and to respond to these social cues that we need to buy this thing in order to be perfect. What has your experience of eco-anxiety been? I used to have panic attacks about climate change. It's such a huge problem that feels so impossible to solve, especially within the bounds of our like current system. It's just impossible not to have anxiety about it. I think when you really start to understand what's at play here. When I first started this page, the reason I started it was I was flying to London for a job interview in February of 2019. And that day, it was 27 degrees in London. And I thought, this is not normal. I don't feel comfortable. I'm not enjoying this weather. This just feels very jarring. And then I started to sort of read into it and read articles about how you know climate change is causing these unusually hot days and I had major anxiety that day and that was the day that I decided okay I'm going to do something about this that year 2019 was the year that I said to myself okay I can't have children I'm not going to have children I can't bring up children in a world where no one cares that we're literally headed towards extinction and since then I have changed my mind that is a symptom of living in a world that I think is more aware and more poised to take action against climate change. I think if we were having this conversation two years ago, there would have been a bit more doomsday talk. But I think the pandemic has shown us, if anything, that we can tackle a global problem together. We can put the best minds in one room and try to solve this problem. We can. We just don't want to yet. And, <laughs> and I think that shift from this is impossible to solve to this is possible to solve, but people don't want to yet has been really pivotal in like addressing my own anxiety about this crisis. I have generalized anxiety. So anytime I think about anything to do with, you know, the future or anything, really, it can, it can be triggered in any way. I've had it for long enough now that I know the only way I'll feel better in the long term is if I take action. Young people will come to see that that is the only tool we have at our disposal to try and mitigate our own anxiety. We have the power and we cannot let the powers that be make us think that all hope is lost. For the longest time, uh, getting into the environmental space, you needed to have like either science skills or government or political skills. And that is no longer, right? And we have the internet at our fingers. Um, and that means that if you have marketing skills like I do, you can use those to try to make climate change easy for others to understand. If you have graphic design skills, you can make slides or you can make graphics that raise awareness. If you have video editing skills, you can make TikTok videos, you can make YouTube videos. Even if you don't have these skills, you have people in your network, you have family, you have friends, you have colleagues, teachers, the bus driver, you know, the postman, anyone. You have a voice. And so I think don't underestimate the power of your voice. And I also think we live in a world where you can press share and 100 people will see it. That has never happened before in history. I think we take it for granted. And I think the two most important things anyone can do is registering to vote and voting for an official who will take climate change seriously. And the second is talking to other people about climate change. Those are the two most important things you can do. If you don't do anything else, that's 90% of the action already. I really resonated with Nagiz sharing that action has been her antidote to eco-anxiety. 
I wanted to learn from other young women around the world about the role gender has played in their feelings of eco-anxiety. So I put a call out and here's what they had to say. My name is Luna Abadia. I live in the United States and I'm 16 years old. I've experienced the adverse impacts of climate change. This past summer, there were wildfires kindled by extreme temperatures and drought and I was unable to breathe in the air outside my house. Our family had to drive 12 hours to evacuate and I just remember feeling completely shocked in the way in which the outside world had become unrecognizable. Climate change has made me feel in significant, hopeless, guilty, and so many more mixed emotions. As a young woman, I feel closely related to the concept of ecofeminism. Around the world, the voices of women and youth are not listened to enough. Without these valuable voices, we can't effectively or equitably formulate solutions that mitigate climate change. My name is Jennifer Ochendo and I live in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm 28 years old. Being an eco-feminist indeed makes me eco-anxious. I'm thinking more about young women in particular and how they are thinking about their future. Women who are already overwhelmed with other issues, you know, like caring from the home front, trying to ensure that their children are fine, trying to ensure that domestic issues are being cared for. So how do we add thinking about how difficult coping with climate change would be in the next couple of years, particularly for poorer African countries who already are burdened by developmental issues like unemployment, poverty, food insecurity, and health issues. My name is Laura. I'm 50 years old and I come from Belgium. If I think about the climate actually changing and all these negative things that are happening, I feel very hopeless because it seems like it's beyond my control and it's not a great feeling to see your future just being taken away by people who are being quite selfish and only caring about money. Cruise. I'm 21. I'm from England. Growing up by the sea has meant that climate change has been extremely prevalent throughout my life. I see the effects of it firsthand, from the plastic floating in the water to the sea levels changing. Climate change makes me feel anxious and agitated, and it often feels like anything I do isn't going to help. But, of course, to quote Greta, no one's too small to make a difference. I've always been aware of ecofeminism, and there's been lots of research to show that when women are involved in change making, the outcome is better and caters for more people. So I think we should be asking, why are women not in the room still? In particular, we need a diverse range of young women to be having the say. What was the demographic of those who were put forward for the UN Climate Summit? Rich, old, white men. And what is the demographic of the leaders of the most progressive countries? Women. This is not a coincidence, and this is in no way discrediting those men who are doing incredible work. Anyone who is involved in making progress towards this is truly amazing. The system needs changing, but we need to have access to the system to change it. I'm very wary of being that Gen Zer who is anxious about everything, who gets depressed, and is really sensitive. But there is a reason for it. Our voices have been suppressed, and our generation, our gender, is finally given a chance to speak up. So we feel this pressure to have to use our wisely. We need to pack a punch with everything that we say and we need to prove that we are worth listening to. Fundamentally, we still have a long way to go to reach gender equality and even further to reach a sustainable planet, but we need to fix both to achieve a flourishing world that is what we all wish for. 
We've just heard from young women speak to the relationship between gender and climate. I'd like to dive even deeper with Caroline, our resident psychotherapist. Caroline is from the University of Bath and has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Caroline, over to you. In my psychotherapy practice, I probably have half and half women and men coming for individual psychotherapy around eco-anxiety. So just as many men are feeling eco-anxiety as women, it's just that they may not find those spaces to talk about it. It's interesting, maybe eco-anxiety is giving this space where it cuts through difference in terms of gender and it cuts through difference in terms of age and it cuts through difference in terms of culture. So although we've talked about the difference in terms of privilege, the capacity to protect yourself, so there are profound differences, but maybe there are profound similarities that actually we can share and find ways to have these conversations that bring us closer to each other rather than separate because it's a shared anxiety globally. Maybe eco-anxiety is a helpful way for young men to start to engage and talk about feelings in ways that other people won't judge them for being weak or pathetic, which is that kind of internalized misogyny and hatred of the feminine. Patriarchy, misogyny has captured and culled and damaged and burnt women's wildness for centuries and either idealized us and called us good girls or denigrated us and called us bitches. We're both, surely. I can be sweet and I can be an absolute bitch. And I think it's about reclaiming that wildness. There's a wonderful book, Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes that I think should be on the national curriculum for everybody. And it's a liberating book about finding your inner fierce, wild, feminine self to take on this stuff and not be crushed by it. I think perhaps we have to be bitchy to get through to them. And I honestly think we have to not be ashamed or scared of being called a bitch. And we need to go out there and go, oh gosh, yes, I'm a bitch. Deal with it. I'm thinking about the Indian <laughs> goddess Kali of creation and destruction. We need to heal that split between the good girl and the bitch and take the bitch into the boardroom and say, nope, we've had enough of this. We're going to call you out. A lot of the reason we're in the mess room with the climate and biodiversity crisis and the epidemic mental health crisis is because of this masculine model, this rigid model of good, bad, right, wrong, crazy, sane. If you use that non-gendered masculine model to split everything, then we're splitting off from parts of ourselves. So we need to reintegrate those parts of ourselves so that we've got the good and the bad, the masculine and the feminine, and then you can become then and develop your own unique individual identity, which does not have to be gendered, but captures that wild feminine aspect. A lot of the reason we're in this mess is because we've got these solar heroic attitudes to the world. We're going to beat the coronavirus. We're going to put screens in the sky, this technological approach to the climate emergency. We're going to get nature into control. We'll deal with nature. Well, mm, that's what's got us into this mess in the first place, is that patriarchal, heroic thinking. And what we need is more lunar thinking, which is the feminine, the moon, more reflective. And if we go to that, it takes us away from that kind of gendered argument, because men are welcome to do that too. 
love how Caroline spoke to the feminine being a force for change. It echoes what Nagir said, which is that the climate crisis, including how we talk about it, is the symptom of a system designed to divide and conquer, instead of connect and nurture. I'm curious to learn how a brand would address gender equity in a way that feels real and meaningful. So I reached out to Fideus, Global Communications and Sustainability Director for Dove. I wanted to chat with Fideus because Dove were behind the first meaningful ad campaign I remember seeing in middle school. It was this video over a time-lapse of a model and how she was photoshopped and distorted to fit a more mainstream image of beauty. I'd never before reflected on how the media might be impacting my own self-esteem, particularly as a young girl growing up on social media. Fidaus kindly agreed to an interview. Before we dive in, here's some more info on Dove. Dove started the Dove Self-Esteem Project, which is the biggest provider of self-esteem education in the world. They've already reached more than 69 million young people across 150 countries since 2004. In 2019, Dove partnered with UNICEF to help deliver self-esteem education to 10 million young people in Brazil, India, and Indonesia. And by 2030, Dove is committed to helping 250 million people build positive body image and realize their full potential. My name is Fredaus El Hansadi, and I am the Global Communications and Sustainability Director for Dove. I'm also a woman, but a mom of three. It's a big part of my life, work and my kids. I would love to hear from your viewpoint where you feel the climate crisis increases gender inequity. I've seen a, lately a report from the UN saying that 80% of the people that are being displaced by climate change are actually women and girls. With this number, it leaves you with actually a question, which is why it is happening more actually to women and girls. And to be honest, it shows that it's symptomatic of gender inequity around the world, that women's voices are not being heard enough. They're actually surviving the effects of the climate crisis. They know better what's going on. And I think we really need to start listening to them, giving them a bigger platform, because we will find the solutions to the climate crisis through their voices, through what they have to say and their experience and knowledge. I know that you've done a lot of work around the role of self-esteem in young people. And I'd love to hear from your view why these challenges around self-esteem affect girls in particular. Women and girls have been disproportionately affected by lack of self-esteem, not feeling confident in their appearance. It, it starts with education. In our societies, talking to our boys in a way where we were pushing them harder on their school results and talking to girls a lot about their appearance. In the cultures we live in, there are some rules, there are some codes. We see actually those beauty stereotypes very visible in media and advertising. They were clearly women were not feeling very comfortable with what they were seeing. But, you know, no one was really talking about it, right? So what Dove did is a big research that revealed only 2% of women around the world would define themselves as beautiful. But the most worrying factor that we've learned is that women and girls are opting out of life when they do not feel confident about the way they look. Eight out of 10 girls do not engage in life activities, such as going to the doctor or taking a sports class or going out with friends because she doesn't feel good in her body. So it's not a trivial issue. It's an issue that has an impact on societies. It's an issue that shows that actually when this girl opts out of school activities or anything else in life, it's actually
actually the whole society that loses because we need these girls at the forefront of fighting issues that our world is facing today. But until we tackle that and relieve the girls from this pressure, they cannot fulfill their full potential. So actually Dove really took on it and so invested in something that we call the Dove Self-Esteem Projects. And the idea was to educate the next generation so that beauty becomes a source of confidence and absolutely not a source of anxiety. And since then became actually the largest provider of self-esteem education around the world with now more than 69 million young people having gone through these educational materials delivered by the Dove Self-Esteem Projects. And we are on a mission to get to a quarter of a billion. There is something which for me is the next step is that brands, the same way we've done with people, the self-esteem, which is investing in people, we need to do the same with the planet. So instead of just thinking about how can we as businesses lessen the impacts we're having, I think we really need to invest in making a positive impact, bringing back what's in some cases nature and the planet has lost. What is your experience as a leader of trying to drive that activism agenda within a big multinational? When you come into a company, it's a collective of individuals that are working towards the same goal. And it's up to you as a leader to define what that goal is. I've been very lucky working with leaders that actually have a valued purpose. And that very uh, early on in my career, I was really lucky to see that actually brands with purpose did exist. And Dove was clearly one of them. So when I came into it and I saw the individuals working in that brand, I was like, it's obvious why this is happening. It's because the individuals that are making this brand alive, that are really committed to seeing society evolve. It's not just a business mindset. Purpose drives growth. How many times, you know, we had people saying, but why are you doing this? Does it sell? And you look at them and you say, you know what? Purpose is absolutely amazing because we have a responsibility in our societies. We need to help fight climate change. We need to support all the causes as a brand like Dove that women are at the forefront of. But at the same time, it does drive growth. Why? Because actually when you're authentically a purposeful brand, people can see it. And then they want to buy your brand because they're taking action by actually buying that product. And so knowing that the younger generation is really committed to making the change and wants to use their wallet to buy purposefully, it does convince people to invest in your brand in the long run because they know you're doing something good. Is eco-anxiety something that you have experienced? And if so, what have you done in response to those feelings? Eco-anxiety is something that I feel every day. I'm a mom. I have a lot of pressure coming from my day-to-day life. Every day I'm stressed out about thinking I'm not doing enough. That's more me as an individual in my house. But looking at my job, I remember two years ago, I was working a little bit with the team on sustainability, but I was not leading it. And I was really looking at it and I was like, this is really a passion point for me. This is really a way for me to do something and drive impact and scale in society. And I went to my boss and I said, you know what? I would love actually to take on the challenge of sustainability for Dove. Okay, I'm not a technical expert, etc., but I'm really willing to do my best and have a vision and try and understand, you know, what a brand like Dove can do. And he said, yes, do it. And it's been now two years. And to be honest, I was really anxious and I was like, am I the right person? I'm not sure I am. I'm not perfect in my day to day, but I'll go for it because I know I can think about what are the best solutions to drive impact. And that's what people need to see from brands. So I just did it. But I can tell you that was probably the most eco-anxious moment of my life. What does a future look like where girls are no longer being held back by self-esteem issues, where young people are able to channel their eco-anxiety into real agency and where businesses are part of the solution? I think it's a world where women and girls feel less anxious about their appearance and where they are focused on fulfilling their potential through driving change in the world. 
world. If tomorrow I go back to Morocco, which is my home country, and I see girls and women leading the way at the forefront, being enabled to drive the change, I will be super proud. I want to see women and girls everywhere in the newspapers, you know, making the change happen. I want to see women and girls everywhere when we talk about climate change, because they are at the forefront of it. They're going to be the ones fighting it. They know the solutions. Just listen to them, right? So I think for me, the dream is to see them everywhere, to see them sharing their wisdom. So we better get to work right now and give them a platform, a louder voice. And that's what we will be as a human being, as a woman, I will try to do. And as a leader within the business, I will make sure that we keep amplifying their voices so that they're heard. In our episode on environmental racism and social justice, Rob described climate change as an everything issue. That includes gender. Over today's episode, we've learned that women and girls are not only tasked with the responsibility to adapt to climate change on the front lines, but also solve the crisis on the leadership level too. Through our conversation with Fidaus, we can see that there are many influences impacting young people's mental well-being. For girls, this includes an advertising industry that perpetuates unrealistic beauty standards and profit from diminished self-esteem, which fits into a bigger picture that Nagiz spoke to. Living in a hyper-consumptive culture, we are targeted with messaging and products designed to make us feel less than, to believe that we need to buy more stuff to be good and beautiful enough. And for young men, buy highly polluting products like the gas-guzzling car or steak to be masculine. Now, Every climate psychologist I've spoken to has said that eco-anxiety is a healthy response. It is proof of our humanity. However, I've noticed in my own life that if I don't personally feel confident and capable, then my eco-anxiety can tip from a force for change into a source of powerlessness. But if I feel confident in my abilities, if I do feel beautiful inside and out, then I feel empowered to channel those feelings into action. To take the case of the Dows, her most eco-anxious moment is in fact what catapulted her to leading the sustainability mission at Dove. In a world where young men are taught that expressing their feelings is a weakness, traveling into their eco-anxiety can be a powerful act of rebellion and means of connecting to compassion, something the world is in desperate need of. If there are two things I take from today, it's that we need women and girls at the forefront of climate solutions and more men who are connected to their feelings. Sustainability isn't possible without inner sustainability. Fortunately, self-love is something we can all start on today. Next week on the show, we will be discussing fast fashion. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Aditi Mayer, photojournalist, labor rights activist, and campaigner whose mission is to decolonize fashion and sustainability. You'll also hear from Michael, co-founder of sustainable fashion disruptor Hilo Athletics. And as always, you'll hear from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Nagiz over on at Chicks for Climate to bring you some super content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. This Saturday on October 9th, we're hosting a panel session featuring young trailblazers from the podcast. If you haven't already signed up, it is not too late. Head to forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast. 
If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofides. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Zineb Jada. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional. Thank you.